Welcome inside 254. Let's close the office door and start the conversation. The talk around the table today is actually an extension of an episode we did a few weeks ago. This is part two of myth busting about Native Americans. If you recall, if you listened to that episode, we got six questions from either listeners or people in our lives or students or in in my case i, I did academic a, interaction I, yeah, I did a presentation and i got some questions um so this is an extension of that this is the final three questions um that we're going to address today so colleen you want to ask me the first question yes so what does an american indian look like because i think of those ads of the american indian with the tear rolling down from Mm -hmm. like the 70s trying to get money for a college fund i think that's a really prevalent image so what does an american indian look like the short answer to this is um american indians don't have one look there is no one monolithic look to an American Indian. However, I will say in our American culture, we do have the stereotypical, what we think a Native American looks like, which is brown skin, long, dark, straight hair, dark eyes, all muscled up, clean shaven, very handsome for a man. Um, for a Native American woman, I think our culture suggests that Native American, American Indian women are again, long, brown hair, flat, uh, uh, straight hair, brown skin, you know, beautiful, big brown eyes, skinny waists, basically, you know, Pocahontas, you know, like little, I think of it as... Wearing buckskin, Right, like the idea of a a Native American Barbie, like there's a completely unrealistic imagining of what a real Native person looks like. That is what our culture suggests to us, what we have in our minds, but that's not actually what Native people look like. Native people look like everybody else, I gotta Mm -hmm. say. So I've had students um, in my classes uh, self-identify. I had a grad student. She is a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, and she is blonde hair, blue eyes, pale skin, just like me, but she is a full member of her nation. Some of my colleagues, my Native American colleagues at other universities, the range of skin tone, the range of hair type, the range of eye color, the range of body shape, the ra- I mean, it's, it is the diversity you see and we try to uh, celebrate in this land. It's that much diversity within Native American nations as well. And I actually pulled a quote from an Indian Country Today media network, a Native writer um, named Harlan Mikasato. He's a citizen of the Sock and Fox Nation, and he actually wrote a story for Indian Country Today Media Network called What Does an Indian Look Like? And hmm. this is one of the things he writes is, quote, what the people who hold on to this image, and he's talking about that stereotypical image, what they don't realize is that being Native American is not what you look like. It's a cultural identity, but it also has political implications. And then at the end of his piece, he says, just know that there is no one way that Native men, women, and children should look anymore. He talks about he was even guilty of, you know, thinking in terms of these certain stereotypes when he was younger. 
he has finally accepted that in his heart and his brain that what Native people look like in reality. And to that end, I would like to encourage our listeners to go view project562.com. That is Matika Wilbur's uh, project. It is, this is from her website. It is a, she's a photographer, Native photographer. It is a multi-year national photography project dedicated to photographing the over 562 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And the result is an unprecedented repository of imagery and oral histories that accurately portray contemporary Native Americans. So this creative consciousness shifting work will be widely distributed through curricula, so changing the educational structure, artistic publications, exhibitions, and online portals. And her website is great. You can look at the um, images on the gallery, um, read the stories from the road, and look at upcoming events. See if you're in the area, you can go to one of her her shows. And it's um, been proven that we need to actually expose ourselves to different voices and different images to undo that monolithic idea of a people. This happens a lot with marginalized communities that... Um, you have one idea, and until you read a book about them or you see a photo or actually interact with somebody, and then that starts to undo and unravel that, that stereotype. Yeah. But it's really, you have to do that work you do. to undo the thing that you think is correct. Yeah, and, and I would just challenge anybody to, if you're thinking in your mind, like if I say, what does a Native American look like? What does an American Indian look like? And that stereotype image that I discussed earlier comes to mind be aware that that's what's in your brain and there's no judgment. I mean, we all have right, that just image. Just be aware of it. Be and aware learn of it. From it. Yeah. And then like what you said, make sure you go and seek out. Mm-hmm. Just all. by listening this or seek out images. So take that awareness to the next level of educating yourself about what, who native peoples are today, including what do they look like and mm-hmm. where are they and that sort of thing. So I feel that's like work. that's your life's work yeah. is getting students to do that. And you've done such a great job of that. So thank you. I try. So the next question is, do all Native Americans live on reservations? No. <laughs> okay. So okay. So, no. so short answer, no. And th- this is actually a question that does come up a lot if we're talking meta questions this is well i think all the drive of these questions is to find something in a small neat box and it can't be like last episode we talked about blood and here you're talking about physical characteristics like there's no easy answer to any of this and so now we're talking about geography it's like can we is there any way we can fit this people into these peoples into like little neat categories the answer is no so now let's talk about geography of it okay so just very briefly i wanted to i i did just a little bit of research to pull in some some facts for you so reservations were created by the u.s congress in 1851 with the indian appropriations act um, which authorized the creation of reservations in what we now know in as modern day oklahoma but that was sort of the beginning a reservation they do still exist it is a legal designation for an area of land that's managed by a federally recognized native american nation under the u.s bureau of indian affairs rather than the state government where that land is located there are currently 326 reservations in the united states Hmm. and not all of the 567 federally recognized tribes have a reservation so that's and let me just expand on that so 
prior to colonization and during and after colonization, despite the fact that there are reservations, they, there still are, they were created, they still exist. Indigenous peoples who were here prior to colonization and who remain here have always lived everywhere. Mm-hmm. So they live in towns, villages, rural areas, urban areas, cities. So, you know, you, you can't say, well, okay, all Native peoples live on res- They don't. They live everywhere. You could have someone who identifies and is part of a Native American nation living next to you. You could be riding the bus with them. You could be, they're in as many places as us settlers are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there is no there's again, no neat one, boundary there's no neat boundary and there's no one monolithic like well this is who they are this is what they look like this is where they live no <laughs> right and the thing is because there is such diversity in looks you don't know who might actually be indigenous it, when you're walking down the street you, you have no idea because there is no there's no one way to tell. So then we circle back to what we talked about before with like self-identification. Somebody would, would have to offer that up and you should never say, are you indigenous? <laughs> like there's no, there's no neat boundary. And re- but reservation life does create, um, you know, I've read several books that try to depict or that do depict life on the reservation. And it does seem like there is a uniqueness to that experience. Yes. I believe But people leave reservations. They do. It's not like they just stay. I think that's the other thing people think is like people don't leave. Like people leave to go to school. People leave to go to hospital. Like it's Mm -hmm. not, it doesn't always have all the services. It's not, it's not like a little city necessarily. And, and also we should probably say that each reservation is different. So like we can't even, that's, that's an umbrella term that, has lots of different visions of that life under it. So we can't have one vision of what reservation means either. And I think yeah. that's another pitfall that a lot of us want to fall into is like, well, now I know everything about what res life, you know, is all about. No, you don't. If you've read one book, you know it about reservation life on that reservation. A little I mean, tiny bit of it. A tiny bit of it. And even, I would say, even on a reservation in a reservation community you're still going to get variation i mean right. we've talked about the cherokee word for water the mm-hmm. the fictionalized woman man killer story uh that she was the first chief uh, chief of the cherokee nation first woman chief of the cherokee nation and the fictionalized version of her story when she was helping the people in bell oklahoma so that movie actually depicts her dealing with uh, sort of there was a divisions within the cherokee community there in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. where there were sort of the traditionalists and the people who didn't want to be on the water grid, and then there were sort of the the town mm-hmm. <laughs> Cherokees who want to be. When we do talk about indigenous peoples at all, because really, bottom line, we do more erasure than anything. Mm-hmm. But when we do talk about indigenous peoples, we cannot put them in a monolithic silo of sameness. Right. There is no essential no experience. Right. Or space. Right. or identity right. or physical char- characterization there's just not so right. we have essentialism to, is bad we just, again right we say that we just have to instead of ignoring them or erasing them with our silence we need to embrace the fact that there are there These are our neighbors there are neighbors yeah. there are there are differences among them they have different political beliefs different 
religious and spiritual practices, different idea. Just they're full. They're full human beings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with fully developed individual identities. And we, we really need to stop. Well, I keep, I keep using the word. I, we, we, need, we need to stop essentializing these people. Yes, but I think it's a good <laughs> word to repeat. Yeah. So this last question yes. is something that I've had people ask me about. Mm-hmm. Um, me too. What is correct? Native American, American Indian. I've said that and people have said to me, oh, are, are we allowed to say that as if there's some policing of this um, or indigenous? So what terminology do we use when speaking about cultures? Okay. I will say that I default to indigenous when I'm talking more generally. I try to I default. I do that too. I've learned it from you. <laughs> I try to default because I've done enough reading and I, I've talked to enough of my um, native scholarly colleagues, like the indigenous colleagues, that um, I still go back and forth between native, Native American, and indigenous as the broad general term, but I try to default to indigenous because it just seems to be the more respectful term these mm-hmm. people were here first mm-hmm. right and that's what indigenous mm-hmm. <laughs> means so mm-hmm. it's it's more accurate but again just like with what we just talked about with the other two questions you cannot make a broad brush assumption about what indigenous peoples um, want themselves although I'm gonna I'm gonna try to provide some guidance and some perspective from native peoples themselves mm-hmm. Okay, so what do they want? When you're talking about an individual, it is always best to default to referring to them by their nation that they claim. So if you're talking about someone who is from the Seminole Nation or from the Lenape Nation or the Diné or Navajo Nation, you refer to them by by their nation. Right? So you're making the connection to the nation instead of just saying this Native American or this indigenous a writer. So you would That's say not a sem- always the poss- seminal writer. Right. Okay. This. Um, so if you can know their nation based on their biography, and we do that a lot when we we're do. recording, we make sure we look up to see if they have said somewhere in a bio mm-hmm. what nation they're from. Okay. So that's, <clears throat> so that's, that's the best. That's like gold standard yeah. language yep. and rhetoric is if that information is there, you seek it out and you use it. And you use it, which okay. of course requires a little bit of extra work if you're teaching about these Folks, if you're doing a, a book or talking, you know, if you're if you're a teacher and you're teaching a book or a film in a class, it, it's a little extra step mm-hmm. to take to discover like, well, where does this actress hail from or where does this director or where does this mm-hmm. author, what nation? It takes and, a minute, people. It, it does. But I mean, that is, a, that is an extra step and I would recommend doing that. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the first. So that's on an individual level. You're talking broadly. Like I said, I default to indigenous as much as possible, but I also use Native American. And here's sort of two perspectives from within indigenous communities. One resource I used is CaliforniaIndianEducation.org, which says that Native American or American Indian, either term is generally acceptable when referring to North American people mm-hmm. indigenous to the important. United States. Right. North American. Right. North this American. In people indigenous to the United States, Mm -hmm. specifically. Not Canada, not Central America. Because Canada, there's First Nations generally refers to tribal groups that are indigenous to what we now know as Canada. And so it's usually considered incorrect to use that First Nations term in reference to people indigenous to the United States. So there is a distinction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But some people, and it actually acknowledges here, some people feel being called, quote, Indian is inappropriate or even offensive. Um, Native Hawaiians are not Indians. They are Native Hawaiians. It's an important distinction. And for people in news, media, and teaching, and academics, 
Um, it says the term American Indian is generally preferred by news media and many academic environments when re referencing native peoples of the lower 48 states. And just full disclosure, I have a graduate level contemporary indigenous rhetorics class. And when I created the undergraduate version of that class, I it ran once with the title Introduction to Contemporary Indigenous Rhetorics, and I had a really hard time filling the class. Oh, I forgot about this. So I changed the name to Native American Writing and Rhetorics, and now the class fills. And I think the reason is because nobody knows what indigenous means, but everybody recognizes Native American. So even though that is not my ideal I did that so that I can get the students in the class. And then I'm guessing on the day, first day, you're like, okay, and we have <laughs> let's talk the, about this term. And we have that conversation. So, you know, there's an adjustment that had to be made there. Amanda Blackhorse uh, wrote for Indigenous. She is Diné, um, what we know as Navajo. Um, she prefers Diné. That mm -hmm. is the name in her language of the Navajo Nation is Diné. She wrote this story. There's actually been a couple stories written by a couple of different um, indigenous writers for Indian Country Today Media Network, and she interviewed uh, a variety of fellow indigenous folks to find out, you know, what do you, what do they prefer to be called? Do they want Native, Native American, Indian, Indigenous by their tribal affiliation? And bottom line, most of them said tribal affiliation, mm -hmm. but of course. For, the, for those of us who teach little, and write, yep. you have to do that extra work. And for the rest of them, focus seems to be on indigenous. But again, there is variation. Like one woman, she wants to be referred to either as uh, Dakota or as an indigenous person. She introduces herself as Dakota. Another one, he prefers to be called by his tribal name, Tohono Odom. Um, but he feels comfortable using native or indigenous as mm -hmm. just blanket terms. So even within indigenous communities, there is no one correct monolithic answer. It really is based on an individual thing. However, I will say, I'll go back to saying, if you want to be respectful, start with, if you're talking about an indigenous person, an individual do a little bit of extra research and find the tribe that they identify with and refer to them by that tribal name. And if it is a more broad-based, use use the word indigenous, um, and you'll be you'll be safe. Good. That okay. Good? I feel like I know so much more now, and I appreciate that you brought up First Nations too, because I never was quite sure what that meant. So this is great. Thank you for our second primer on what I feel like is actually just should be the base. And this is your base, right? And if you take a class or if you move on, at least you have a good foundation about issues um, that the indigenous communities deal with. So thank you, Amanda. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I did my best. So you did a great job. Move forward in better knowledge. Yay. Like what you're hearing? Become a patron of our podcast and help us be sustainable. Click that little green Become a Patron button on our Podbean page and it'll get you started. But here's the cool news. There are three different patron levels that you can participate in to show your love and support of our hard work for you. A monthly commitment of just $1, which is less than the cost of a cup of coffee, gets you a large, cool, square sticker for your computer with our freshly designed logo, and you can share the love. For $5 a month, you get two stickers, a shout out on Facebook and on the podcast, plus our newest patron level of $8 a month. You'll get all the love and swag of the $1 and $5 levels, but also early access to every episode and expert extra. 
So join our patron team at this $8 a month level and be in the know before everyone else. All of your donations are greeted with our deepest gratitude. Thanks for keeping us sustainable. Time for... Trumpster Fire! Amanda? Yes, Colleen? We gotta talk about double Tr- Donald Trump and his relationship with the press again. Oh my... You know what? I need to drop an F-bomb. Psh- F-bomb! Okay. No Go. fucking shit, dude. Another F-bomb. Okay, this guy... This guy... I'll tell you what. Yeah. So he continues to mock the press he continues to point them out when he holds rallies instead of attending the white house correspondence dinner yeah i wonder how many presidents have not attended that Zero. dinner. oh they so all they, go they've all gone because go. you know where he's sending another message to all of us about how he values the press which Zero. is not at all he, he disdains them I mean, he's so fucking dangerous so in, in super good news <laughs> we actually have a bomb that we're dropping every time you can check us out yeah. on youtube so look at our youtube video um, on this trumpster fire <laughs> so the uh, Reporters Without Borders, or RSF, Reporters Sans Frontières, okay. so they rank the media, they, they do a ranking about hostility towards media, and they have come to the conclusion in their 2018 survey that the hostility toward the media is no longer limited to authoritarian countries. So this is terrible news because the unleashing of hatred towards journalists is one of the worst threats to democracies, we are reminded by Secretary General Christophe Deloire. I mean, seriously, it's the first, it's one of it's the bad. first steps toward an authoritarian regime. When you, when you start, oh God. When, when you eliminate a free press, when you criticize the free press, when you're attacking journalists, when you're attacking, you're, that is, I mean, haven't you people watched The Handmaid's Tale? Oh my God, episode oh. two of season two, it's killing me. Oh I can't my. stop thinking about it. Have you watched it. season, have you watched I episode can't. three? No, oh, I'm my. afraid of it. Okay. I'm afraid of it, but anyway. Well, anyway. Okay. So, <laughs> um, Duluar added that political leaders who fuel loathing for reporters bear heavy responsibility because they undermine the concept of public debate based on facts instead of propaganda. To dispute the legitimacy of journalism today is to play with extremely dangerous political fire. And it is for that reason that the U.S. slipped two places in a year, now ranks 45th out of 180 countries on this listing. Uh, They noted that this lowering is because of President Donald Trump's frequent, quote, castigation of journalists and that he was, quote, a media bashing enthusiast. So all of this screaming about fake news and convincing the American people that the media is the enemy of the American people is going to have severe and I'm afraid violent consequences. He is referred to the U.S. media as, quote, the opposition party. So he, he is creating in his followers, I don't even know what word to use anymore, that anything the media says is wrong or fake says here that the U.S.'s decline in press freedom is not simply bad for journalists working inside the country. And here's the big problem when this happens in the U.S. The downward trend has drastic consequences at the international level. Fake news is now a trademark excuse for media repression. And I've been hearing this. People keep using this in both democratic and authoritarian regimes, the uh, reporters Sans Frontières said. So this is this is not a problem that's just here. This mm-hmm. is a problem. This is like the worst export we are doing 
as a United States community, we have now exported this idea of, quote, fake news so that we doubt journalists who are laying themselves on the line to bring us these stories. And I'd like to remind everybody, too, that a free press is another constitutionally guaranteed right right alongside free speech. Oh, is it? Yes. (laughs) I don't know my constitution very well. Sorry. It's, I mean, it's, he's literally cherry picking what he likes Mm. and what he doesn't, right? So we see, we see right wing, you know, protesters who are out there shouting all sorts of hate speech and getting away with it. Donald Trump's um, a lot, a lot of, I would say his, like the super base, right? Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. 30%, the, they're just going to, no matter what he does or says, they're going to like him anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they are not our audience but i wish they were and i, I wish know. that somebody would actually i wish any of them would care take my class and talk yeah. about what how to make a good argument just to just to to wrap this particular talk up because again the trump survivor we don't have solutions to that we don't have solutions we're just we're just trying we, to amplify these small remember trump survivor is to bring to light smaller things that you maybe missed in the bigger scheme yeah. of the loud stuff like yeah. so we're not talking about stormy daniels and no. rudy giuliani like you already no. know about that no. but how we're moving down in the legitimacy of our press that's a dangerous thing that we can't overlook and I will say, you know, because, uh, <clears throat> you know, his his followers, as you say, his base um, tends to watch Fox News, and he himself only considers Fox News to be legitimate news, and everybody else is wrong, right? Because everybody else is fake or whatever. And I will say, Neil Cavuto this week, I saw that, yeah, actually did a segment where he calls out Donald Trump and all of his misinformation and at least his inconsistencies. And and I will admit, it was a softball criticism. I mean, it was Fox. We'll take it, was, it. But you know what? He actually lays out where Trump was saying one thing and saying something else and then saying one thing. And it's all this misinformation laid out. And, you know, the criticism of the media is part of it. I'll take that. Because if the channel that all of his base is is clinging to is starting to in tiny tiny little bits starting to recognize and bring to light some of these inconsistencies and these problematic statements i'll take it i'll take it i'll take it (laughs) it's not a panacea but it's something maybe it moved the bar and helped because i know those folks aren't going to look at the new york times that has been keeping an ongoing record of all the misleading statements and so they're not going to look at that because the new york times is quote unquote fake news but i'm going to guess most of those journalists at Fox News read the New York Times. I bet they do, too. Every morning. Yep. So, you know, the paper of record is and, still a thing. And in the end, I mean, I, what I'm hoping happens is in the end, I think the reporters at Fox News are going to finally fucking realize, F-bomb, <laughs> that they are part of the media, too. And they are journalists, too. And it may come down to the entire structure of media with journalists standing together as one against this dude. Well, that's a super him. utopian view. I like it that. Is. That's the way we avoid The Handmaid's Tale Season 2, Episode 2. If you have not watched it, watch oh it. Boston Globe. Oh, my God. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. So so keep an eye on these little stories, these yeah. little things, how the rest of the world is following us and how throughout the entire world, the boundaries, the borders of journalism and keeping journalism self are eroding. And the chilling effect of these kinds of words and attitudes from our uh, so-called commander-in-chief. We dedicate ourselves to collective resistance. 
Resistance to the billionaire mortgage profiteers and gentrifiers. Resistance to the healthcare privateers. As I have said, and as I believe, the advancement of the full participation of women and girls in every aspect of their societies is the great unfinished business of the 21st century. And not just for women, but for everyone. And not just in far away countries, but right here in the United States. Thank you for understanding that sometimes we must put our bodies where our beliefs are. Sometimes pressing send is not enough. <laughs> if, if we want to give all of our children a foundation for their dreams and opportunities worthy of their promise, if, if we want to give them that sense of limitless possibility, that belief that here in America, there is always something better out there if you're willing to work for it, then we must work like never before. This episode's fierce woman warrior is Dr. Adrian Keene. The problem with stereotyping is that it shrinks the diversity of Indian country down into this series of one-sided stereotypes. So I showed you that beginning Google image search. I showed you those pictures. Um, and all of them tend to represent that Plains Indian stereotype. But the reality is that there are over 566 tribes in the US. Um, those are just federally recognized tribes. There's also state recognized and unfederally recognized tribes as well. And each of those tribes has their own language, their own cultural and spiritual practices, their own government, their own history, um, et cetera. And that is completely erased by um, these stereotypes that we see over and over again. And then, as I've said multiple times, these things set us in the historic past or as completely extinct. Um, and that erases our contemporary existence. And in our communities, we have a lot of uh, struggles. We have a lot of hard things going on, and that just isn't in the minds of peoples um, when they're thinking about Native folks. And on the other hand, we also have a lot of amazing, joyful, and triumphant, and incredible things going on, and that's completely erased as well, because everyone thinks that Natives are something that existed in the past. Adrian Keene is an assistant professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University. She writes the blog Native Appropriations and hails from the Cherokee Nation. She is a writer, scholar, and activist. Prior to becoming a professor, she used the public platform of her blog to draw attention to the cultural appropriation of Native peoples, their cultures, practices, and artifacts, and their very presence in America today. I started following her writings when I was in grad school, and her words, wisdom, research, and experience have taught me a great deal about cultural appropriation and about contemporary Indigenous peoples' experiences. Her research focuses on college access for Native students and the role of pre-college access programs in student success, but her public platforms push back against stereotypes and misrepresentations of Native peoples in America today. Because of her work, Victoria's Secrets stopped dressing their models in headdresses. 
Other major designers have started collaborating with native designers, and more people are talking about and thinking about the consequences of appropriating indigenous cultures. Dr. Keene uses her voice, her writings, and her presentations to publicly push back, challenge, and teach all of us to be more respectful of indigenous peoples, which helps her community become more visible and real in the landscape of today. Let's take a time out for a Media Minute. David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI taught me about an element of the atrocities committed against indigenous peoples that I had never heard of, financial guardianship. Basically, the government thought that the Osage community could not handle their own newfound wealth thanks to the oil and the land to which they were forced to relocate. So each member of the Osage Nation had to ask an appointed, usually white, guardian for access to their own money. While the book's main story, the murder of dozens of members of the Osage Nation, is captivating and keeps you reading, the guardianship and the horrors that it led to were the most shocking element of the book to me. Killers of the Flower Moon details the structural oppression and its impact on individual lives. Both the economic and physical livelihoods of the community were at stake during what is known in Osage history as the Reign of Terror, when at least 60 community members were murdered. I pride myself in having a decent knowledge of indigenous issues, but this book reminded me that I always have more to learn. Let's end today's podcast with some activist actions. Stop erasing indigenous presence and indigenous experiences from anti-racist discussions. For instance, when you see a story about the federal government possibly separating immigrant children from their parents at the border, remember and include the fact that the U.S. government has a long history of this practice with indigenous peoples and the Indian boarding schools of the late 1800s and well into the 20th century. We'll talk more about these boarding schools in an upcoming episode, but go ahead and Google that in the meantime. Another way to stop erasing indigenous peoples is to follow some of them on Twitter and Facebook. I suggest following the professional pages for Malia Powell, Ph.D., and Joy Harjo on Facebook as a good start. Malia is, quote, an indigenous mixed-blood feminist cultural rhetoric scholar teacher practitioner, for starters. That's from her description on her Facebook page. And Joy is a Muskogee poet, musician, and author. And on Twitter, follow Dr. Adrian Keene at symbol native approps. So it's at symbol native and then A-P-P-R-O-P-S. And also Indian Country Today Media Network. You can follow them at symbol Indian Country. You've heard me talk about them before. You should be following them. If photos and pictures are more your speed, follow Northern Cheyenne and Crow designer Bethany Yellowtail at B Yellowtail and the indigenous band A Tribe Called Red on Instagram. No more excuses and no more erasing indigenous peoples. 
Thanks for spending time with us inside 254. You can find us a lot of places online. On Facebook, we're at Inside 254 Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Inside 254 Pod. On Instagram, we are at Inside 254. And on WordPress, where we post links and places that you can go to donate or learn more about our activist actions, we're at Inside254Site, S-I-T-E dot WordPress dot com. You can find our free episodes on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play Music, and you can also just Google us. There are two things you can do to help us build audience today. You can go onto Facebook, click one of those stars, and leave a comment as feedback, And then you can go to your listening platform and rate us on there as well. By doing those two things, that's going to get our word out and help us build our audience. Thank you for helping us grow.